of us are going to be in Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26 this morning. So when you think of the word blessed or blessed, those who are blessed, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of someone who is blessed? It's easy to think of people who are blessed are those people who have the good life. Things are going well. They don't have problems. They have all that they need and maybe even what they want. In the Heartbreak Gospel, Brian Wilkerson came up with a list of Beatitudes that may describe the 21st century. For example, in our world, blessed are the rich and famous because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Blessed are the good-looking for, for they, are, shall, they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who party, for they know how to have fun. Blessed are those who take first place in their division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. Blessed are those movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit. Because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are the... Now, those so-called beatitudes reflect some of the values of our uh, world that we live in today. But that kind of describes an independent lifestyle, independent living. Living that's not dependent. And uh, Jesus himself gave a list of... Beatitudes. He did on more than one occasion. Uh, the main ones are Matthew chapter five, verses uh, Matthew five through seven in the Sermon on the Mount, and the passage we're going to look at today is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. But here Jesus has begins with in this sermon um, a, a series of beatitudes, and it proclaims his values and his attitudes. So. Um, if you want to turn in, if you uh, grabbed a Bible coming in, that's going to be found on page 720. And the rest of us are looking at Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And um, we're going to start with the year of the Lord's favor on display in verses 17 through 19. The year of the Lord's favor on display. Look at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. So let's have a look at this passage. And um, by way of the context here, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus had been up on the mountain, if you remember. He'd been up there all night in prayer. And the result was he chose uh, his 12 disciples who he would call apostles. And he gave them his authority 
as a result of being on the mountain and spending time with God. Um, he also... Um, so now he's come down. That's what verse 17 tells us. He has come down to be with the people. And uh, I want us to be reminded of the larger context in Luke. So let's go back to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And uh, you remember Jesus went into his synagogue in Nazareth, and he read this scripture, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he read it out loud to the whole group, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said in front of everybody, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And people thought about that and they got mad. Jesus was here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what he's doing in his preaching. And um, so when we uh, let's look at the location in verse 17, that he went down with them and stood on the level place. Now, some people think that it's possible. Good people believe that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 are the same sermon. Maybe there are quite a bit of differences in them. And Matthew definitely focuses on a Jewish audience. And there's a lot of Old Testament scripture in Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. They could be the same location. They could be different locations. Some believe the Sermon, the sermon on the Plain is actually uh, up on top of the mountain on a flat surface, maybe. I think more likely, my view would be uh, there are two entirely separate uh, sermons. And it's not uncommon at all that any preacher repeats himself, if you haven't noticed. It's just kind of a comment where you get a chance to talk to a new group of people and you have more to say about what you already told somebody else because it's all about the kingdom. And so there would be a lot of repetition in stories when Jesus went from place to place. And he might, he might tell it. He might have a different focus. Um, I think Luke has a very short version um, it seems like around 30 verses, where Matthew has over 100 verses for this, this uh, sermon. So uh, we learn in verse 17 that a large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, this sounds like a map, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. So a large crowd of people had gathered. Now, Capernaum, can you see that? It's above that little tiny sea of Galilee. It's up in the north, all right? Jesus is near there, probably within a few miles, way up north. If you drop down to, remember that Judea is like a province, or for us it's the size of a county. Jerusalem is in Judea, and Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. If you are a Jewish person, it's where the temple of God is. It's also where Jesus would be crucified. Remember, Nazareth is where Jesus was raised, and he also read the scripture there in Luke chapter 4. People from all the way down south 
have gone up north. And that's a big deal because the people in the south sort of viewed like, we've got it all together. We've got the temple. People have to come to us. But people are going up to Galilee, and there's lots of Gentiles up there. Tyre and Sidon are cities in Syria, and they are Gentile cities. And people are coming from all of those places just to hear Jesus. And we see the display in verses 18 and 19. Uh, verse 18, all these people came who, who, who had come to hear him because he was teaching. He was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And, and he, they came to be healed of their diseases because they had heard Jesus is doing miracles. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. People had heard that Jesus had cast out demons. And Jesus uh, continued to perform these amazing miracles on this occasion. It was a display of God's power and his authority. It was a display. It was intentional to show people who God is. It was intentional to show people that God was up to something new. God was at work. If you remember, uh, we have said on several occasions that God's use of miracles are designed to authenticate the message and the messenger. And this was to attract attention. Hey, folks, wake up. Look what God is doing. Pay attention. And when, the, when a prophet of God speaks for God... And the prophet is doing miracles. Boy, that's big time. And of course, this is the most important prophet in all of history. Isaiah 35 verses 3 through 5 gave some clues about this. Isaiah wrote in the 8th century BC and uh, before Jesus. And Isaiah said, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Guess what? He's here. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is present. He will come with vengeance. Jesus didn't come with vengeance. He will in Revelation 19. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. He will come with divine retribution, but he didn't yet. This is one of those passages, and there are a few in Isaiah, where in speaking of Jesus and speaking of Messiah coming, both the first and the second coming are, in the, are included. And here they're out of order for us. We like chronology. But this is just information about Messiah coming that would describe who he is and what he would do. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Oh, we get that one. Miracles. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Literally and metaphorically. Secondly, in verses 20 through 23, uh, we see the eternally fulfilled. This is a group of people. And it's kind of surprising. It's about Jesus' values. Verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject 
your name is evil because of the Son of Man. So, first thing we see is that the good news is for those who recognize that they have a need for God. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, the good news, and he starts with the poor. Remember that? Blessed are you who poor. He's looking right at his disciples. And they are poor by world standards. Not only that, they have given up all to follow him already. They have walked away from their source of income to follow Jesus. But that really describes the whole crowd. Because the people who have come are people in great need. And they are not people of means, at least the vast majority of those people. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have taught that being poor is probably being cursed by God, that there's a reason you're poor, and if you would just become righteous and keep the rules, then you would be like the rest of us. You would have resources that you need. But because you're poor, it's because of your disobedience. Um, Jesus loves poor people. That's what he wanted them to know. God cares about them. The offer of the kingdom of God is for them because they know they need help. Now, God is, this is not a blessing on poverty in any way. The Bible has a whole lot to say about God's people taking care of the poor, providing for the needs of the poor, showing love for the poor, giving to the poor. The Bible has a lot. So it's not a blessing on poverty, but it's about those people who recognize their need. Very often, people without resources know they have to reach out to something beyond themselves. Um. You know what the poverty level is in the United States? For a family of four, $24,600 is the poverty line. Can you make it on $24,600? Just that's nothing else. Now, there may be some of you who are making that, who who are are getting by. Uh, Philip Yancey asked the question in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Why did Jesus single out the poor? And he gives um, a quote here from Monica Hellwig. And whether you agree or disagree, think about this. She said, the poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know not only their independence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence with one another. The poor rest their security on not on things, but on people. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance and no exaggerated need of privacy. What do you think of that? The poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. The poor can wait. Because they have acquired a kind of dogged patience. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated. Because they already know that no one can survive 
without great suffering and want. They, they know how to survive with great suffering and want. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news. And not like a threat or a scolding. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. Jesus was talking to an audience who were already his followers, who mostly were in significant financial need, and he wanted them to know that the kingdom of God was for them. He also mentioned the hungry in in verse uh, 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Jesus is not focusing on poverty here. He's not saying, for example, if you're poor, oh, you get to go to the kingdom of heaven. This is not the way of salvation. He's not talking about that at all. Nor is he saying, if you need food, a good deal, You'll be saved. He's not saying that at all. He's just talking about people who don't have resources. know they need help. And it's much easier sometimes for them to look to God for help. And and, um, Jesus promised those who were poor, who were following him, that they would have the kingdom of God. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the future. And he's talking here to those who hunger now that you will be satisfied. You're not going to be hungry forever. And then in verse 21, he talks about those who mourn. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Jesus knew that in his audience there were people who were hurting, who were suffering, who had lost loved ones through death. Jesus knew the pain that people faced, the failures, the broken relationships. Jesus understood their pain. And why people shed tears. And he cared and he loved them. And, and he, he wants to encourage him encourage them that this isn't all there is. There is something greater and better, but it's not yet. Here's a question for you. Are you blessed? By the way, that means, oh, the happiness. Are you blessed? Is your cup half full or half empty? Probably most of you are more than half full. Or there's more in it and you're still empty. If you're half full, you're grateful for what's there. Thankful to God and you can count your blessings. And there's a sense of contentment even though there's still more needs. There's still more things that would be helpful and good. But if it's half full or half empty, it's all about what I don't have, what I need and what I'm going to try to get. And there's a major lack of contentment. Verses 22 through 23, uh, Jesus 
talks about the fulfilled lifers for those who follow him in, in total dependence on him. The fulfilled life, the blessed life, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you. He's talking about people who are following him already. And he's saying, uh, right now, there may be people who hate you, who dislike you. When they exclude you, they keep you out. When they insult you, when they make fun of you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because you are connected with me, because you are in relationship with me, people may reject you. And it may hurt, and it may be disappointing, and it may be sad, but Jesus said, there's going to be a reward way beyond this. Jesus is talking about... You know, we, sometimes we, we jump. Is he talking right now? How does it fit with the first century? Keep in mind, he's talking to a Jewish audience primarily. And if they become followers of Jesus, they will be kicked out of their local synagogue where they worship. Probably their families will reject them. Some of their friends will disown them. And they may be disconnected from their former relationships. And it may be hard, and they may be criticized. If you remember, um, after Jesus was put to death, James, the brother of John, who was one of the twelve, um, was beheaded. He was executed by Herod in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, uh, Stephen was stoned to death because he was a follower of Jesus. And Jesus wanted them to know there's going to be some things happen when you follow Christ that are going to be really, really hard. You just keep following and you're going to be blessed. You have no clue how great eternity is going to be. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Would you want to leap for joy if you're James and you're in the audience and all of a sudden you got a picture of what was coming? Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. He's talking to a Jewish audience. He's saying, your ancestors, the Jewish people, didn't even like the true prophets of God when they came and spoke truth to them. And they were often criticized and rejected, and some of them were even put to death. Think of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, mistreated. And we come to um, verses 24 and through 26, and this is our last section, the, eternal, the eternally regrettable life. The eternally regrettable life. Verse 24, the good news does not benefit those who do not recognize their need for God. Look at 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And so Jesus identifies the rich. As he's saying, rich people can't go to heaven? Nope, he's not saying that. The danger for the rich is to be able to accumulate their own resources and take care of all of their needs and begin to think that they don't need God. That's a danger for the rich. Oh. If being rich, Jesus would say, and having stuff is what this life is about for you, so be it. You get it. And that's it. 
That will be your reward. But you can't take it with you. And you will be eternally separated from God. Woe to you who are rich if that's what you think life is about. Because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. In verse 25, he talks about the well-fed. Woe to you who are well-fed. Now, for you will go hungry. If having resources and having comfort are what your life is about, you may be well-fed now. But you are going to have an eternal hunger totally separated from God in hell. It will be a hunger that's never, never satisfied. And he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And he's talking to about people who enjoy laughing at the expense of others and making fun of others as if they were more important and more valuable And more worthy than other people. Because they don't need God in their life. And if that's true. If you don't need God. You will mourn and weep. In eternity. In the next life. Verse 26. He refers to those of high social standing. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. He refers to the ancestor two, two different times. First, the ancestors mistreated the true prophets. Now the ancestors treat well the false prophets. Because some people see that their worth is in their social standing. The religious leaders of Jesus' day valued their high social standard, who they rubbed shoulders with, who were their friends, what influence they had. Um, their ancestors, and the, regarding ancestors and the false prophets, the Jewish, uh, their Jewish ancestors promoted these false prophets, and they killed the true prophets. The true prophets are the ones who call them to repent, to turn back to God, to pursue obedience to God. But people who made them comfortable, they liked to hang around. And um, they paid them well. Lastly, the the regrettable life is for those who choose not to follow Jesus. It's a regrettable life. The regrettable regrettable life is for those who don't need God. The rich and the famous, those who depend on human accomplishments and human provision. Question. Is your life regrettable? Is there something regrettable about your life? As a follower of Christ, one of the things I think is helpful is... From time to time, I just need to realign my life. I need to um, look at Jesus' values and look at my values. And are my values lining up more with the world? Are they aligning more with Jesus? And then I have an opportunity to make adjustments. To recognize where I failed and acknowledge that before God. And then turn back and 
sharpen my focus in following him so that my values are the same values. And I just want to remind uh, us of um, what the regrettable life leads to. In Romans 3.23, the scripture says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well-known passage. All have sinned. That means rich people and poor people. All. But the gospel is for all people. For every person. But it's about understanding their need. Uh, Scripture says um, to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a requirement to have a relationship with him. To have eternal salvation. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to be perfect. But that's impossible. Because all of us fall short of that standard. All of us have sinned. Either in our attitudes or our actions. You know, God gave the Ten Commandments, and there's so many people who've tried to keep them, thinking if I'm, I'm pretty good at this, and I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to, by doing good, and I'm going to please God, and I'm going to be accepted by God. But nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. That, that's why he gave them to us, so that we could see how much we fall short. Anytime you put something ahead of God, you fall short. If you've ever taken that God's name in vain, you've fallen short. If you've ever disobeyed your parents or dishonored your parents in word or action, you've sinned. The Bible says, you shall not kill. And Jesus said, even if you think uh, about harming your neighbor, that's hatred and that's wrong. Or if you've ever had um, a morally inappropriate thought or action, that's sin. If you've ever stolen anything, any, taken anything that wasn't yours, that's sin. If you've ever coveted something that wasn't yours and you want it to be yours, you've fallen short. That's just a few, by the way. But there are consequences in Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. It's just really simple. Wages are consequences. It's what we get. If you have a job and you get a paycheck, those are your wages and that's what you deserve. You agree to work at that job for those wages and when you receive them, you've received what you've earned. What the Bible says about our sin is what we've earned is death. Those are consequences because of sin. And here death is not just physical death. We're all destined to die once, and then comes a judgment. But this is a reference to a spiritual death. Separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Physical death is when the soul and the spirit separate. Uh, Or we say the soul and the body separate. We put the body in a grave, and and the soul remains alive. To either be with Jesus, or to be separated from Jesus for eternity... And Jesus called that hell. The wages of sin is death, and it's an eternal death. And it's a place of eternal punishment that Jesus describes in the Gospel of Matthew. That's all bad news. But there is good news, and that's what we see in Romans 5.8. But God, and this is why Jesus came, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God was moved out of love for people. Whether they were poor or hungry or hated, God was moved by love. And he demonstrated love. He went all the way. Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for sin. Christ died for us. That's the key right there. Christ died for us. I deserve the death because the wages of my sin is death. I deserve that. He took my place. He took your place. He died for every person. He was our substitute. He was our stand-in. And the price of sin is paid for. That's good news. And people don't understand that. We, people so often want to do good things. Want to think the way I'm going to please God is I'm hoping that if I get enough good things, one day he's going to accept me because I'm good. He'll never be good enough. Never, never, never. It's already been done. And what God has asked of us is for us to put our trust in what he has done for us, to put our trust in Jesus. Romans 10, 9, and 10. So we've just done the Romans road. For, for some of you who know the Romans road is four passages out of Rome that communicate the gospel. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. To be able to say Jesus is Lord is, is, what, is what happens after I place my faith in Christ. He, he can become my Lord after I believe. It's the fruit of God's work. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You see, Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. It was proof of his victory. It was proof of life after his death. It proved his defeat of Satan, his defeat of sin, his victory over death. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. It is with your heart that you believe and are saved. Saved from the penalty of sin, which is death or hell. That's what we get saved from. This is why it's good news. Jesus did it. He did the work. And he's called us to trust him. And when we do, we receive his gift of eternal life, which includes forgiveness of sins. I understood this uh, and put my faith in Jesus Christ on September 29th, 1974, about 4.30 in the morning. How do I know? I was there. I was an atheist up to this point. And uh, when I believe what God said, God began to work in my life. And I experienced forgiveness of sins. And I experienced a fresh start and a sense of having a clean slate and a new beginning. And so my question is, is there anybody here who would like to begin a relationship with Jesus today? 
Is there anybody here who would like to experience for the very first time forgiveness of sins and have Jesus in their life to help and to guide uh, throughout their lifetime? And I want to give us an opportunity this morning. Um, First, everybody needs to recognize that we're sinners. I know that there's a lot of people in this room that have made this decision in the past. And I'm guessing there's some people in this room who have not made this decision yet. And I just want to give you that opportunity. So you need to know that you're a sinner. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that sin has its consequences? And that's death. And it's eternal death. Separation from God forever. And you need to understand what God has done for you. The gift. Jesus died for you. He took your place. And he paid for your sin. It was personal. He cared. He loves you. And you need to place your faith in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. Jesus is alive right now because of the resurrection. He's in heaven. He's alive. He's real. Can you trust him? He did it for you. Will you trust him? It's the only way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, here's one way you can express your faith. And that's through prayer. Prayer is one way to communicate with God. It's a way to talk to God. And it's a way to express your faith, what you believe. And so, I'm going to say a prayer this morning and, and give you that opportunity and um, I like to say it two times. I like you to think about what, what I'm saying to see if it makes sense. And the second time, I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. And uh, if that prayer made sense to you, you can just pray that silently from where you're sitting. And if you're, you, you already know that uh, Jesus has saved you, you can just say, thank you, God, for forgiveness. And you can pray for, for everybody in the room. So here's the prayer. You don't have to bow your head. You can look right at me. See if this prayer makes sense. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me. I deserve death. He died in my place. And I want to trust Jesus right now to pay for my sins. And I want to ask Jesus to help me to be the person he wants me to be in the days ahead. So it can be as simple as that. That's a way to express your faith. Let's all bow our heads and just where you're seated. If that prayer made sense to you, you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to pray with me silently from your own heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place because I deserved that death and he took my place. I trust Jesus right now to pay the penalty for my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. And I want to ask Jesus to help me to live in a way that honors him. To help me to be the kind of person that he wants me to be. Now if you just prayed that prayer, would you mind just just slipping up your hand wherever you're seated so I can see? If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. Thank you. Who else? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. Okay, you can put your hands down. Thank you, Father, uh, for the good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. 
Thank you uh, for forgiveness. And Lord, it's my prayer that uh, you would just encourage those people in this room who prayed with me this morning to place their faith in Jesus. May they sense and experience right now your forgiveness. May they sense your presence in their life right now and sense that you want to help and lead and direct them. And Father, for all of us, as uh, we think about the values of Jesus and what's regrettable and what's really blessed, Father, um, help us to adapt where we need to so that we're dependent on you and we're not trying to do life independently on our own. For Jesus' sake, amen.